now on Racing Pulse, RSN's racing editor, Matt Stewart. I didn't like the last race as feature when they did it a few years ago, but there might be a bit of a somewhere in between sort of solution. For more news, opinion and selections, head to rsn.net.au. Ah, it is that time of the day. It is RSN's racing editor, Maddie Stewart, who joins us. Uh, Maddie, good morning to you. Morning, Mick. Had a lovely few days out at Inglis. That was great, wasn't it? It certainly was, and there's a great atmosphere out there. But one thing which I think shone through, and I don't think it's a negative at all, and you've been talking about this, is that I think we've seen a correction in the market as far as the sales are concerned. A lot of the, the trainers, even... Um, English themselves were saying that this is expected after the the bubble of COVID and the boom in sales prices. Um, they returned to pre-COVID normal levels, and I think there wasn't speaking Anthony Mithin yesterday. There's there's no bluing from the actual vendors who realise they've been li- living in um, paddocks of of lush. Um, money the last couple of years and the buyers are certainly happier that it's easier now to get what they want. That's right. There's there's two players in the game, one of the vent- the vendors and the and the buyers, and when the vendors are not getting what they want, then the buyers almost certainly are. So as we often say, like if you compare it to the housing market, no one celebrates when prices are up. Everyone celebrates when prices have come down. So I think there's a very positive spin on there's a there's a sort of a knee jerk habit in racing to sort of automatically celebrate high prices. I've always wondered why we do that because <laughs> there's half the market that are, that's disadvantaged. So I think a, a sort of a settling down of the prices gives syndicates good opportunities, five percenters, uh, everyone. So I actually think there's a bigger plus than a minus in it, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think there's been a sentiment of that as well. Um, Sebastian Hutch said he was prepared for the challenging sale. Uh, that's what they had. Uh, this year's um, English Classic grossed $57 million, well below $67 million. So it's across the board. It seems to be, and it was interesting yesterday uh, when we were speaking to the guys from English that there's a lot of projections about the Magic Million sale that they break all these records. Well, if you drill down, they're not actually breaking all the records. They've got more horses in the catalogue, therefore their their Hmm. figures of the gross are bigger than years before. But the averages and the middle and lower tiers of the sales are well down, which is, I think, what we're seeing throughout the board. Well, when you look at the return for investment, it makes a lot more sense to uh, take part in that investment uh, when the when the price goes down, because the return on investment, as we know, is uh, not it's not great because it's just the nature of the game. There's risk, so um, all those million dollar plus yearlings we celebrate at the Gold Coast. The problem is, three years later, how do, how does the sums look with those horses? So it's it's a lot easier to make sense of it when they cost five hundred thousand. So. so Mick Price and, and Junior led the sale for top buyers. They bought ten. Uh, at just a tick under $1.8 million all in total. Um, it was the filly that was the, the top lot, the $1.1 million I'm Invincible. Blue Gum, um, change of ownership, but the status quo remains as they were the, the, the leading vendor at I the sale. Th- I think again. I read somewhere that Flying Artie's going to Blue Gum. Um, so just the, the one that jumps out in summary is the overall spend. Uh, three days premier, as you touched on, uh, was $58.3 million, million, whereas 12 months ago it was $77.2 million. That is a massive drop. 
That is massive. But I don't think it's necessarily a negative. So, yeah, but it was great. Um, what, what was wonderful was seeing... I love seeing jockeys roaming around out there. Danny Brereton used to love going to the yearling sales. Um, I, I, I love the fact that Blake Shin was out there, and we got a little grab from him as well to sort of... We, we, I think we were talking about it yesterday, or might have been on the Big V, about how there's so many different parts of the racing and breeding industry for people to sort of become engaged with, starting with breeding farms and yearling sales and, and then the racetrack. And it was really interesting hearing Blake Shin talk about how important it is for even participants like jockeys to get a real feel for the nursery side of it. And the, eventually these are the horses that come through that they're going to throw their leg over to understand them. And this is what Blake Shin told us yesterday about why he thinks it's important that people like him go to yearling sales. Well, I'd like to see more of it. You know, there's, I'd love to see apprentices and yeah. young kids out here um, learning about this too and getting educated as well. Um, I've seen a couple, Johnny Allen was out here yesterday and stuff, but I think the more knowledge that the young kids have about the industry, it's, uh, it's the better, right? So. Totally, totally spot on. You know, and people like Blake Shin need to be heard because... I, you know, and I know I'd said to get on my little soapbox about this, but I think for for the greater good for racing's for people to have love and affection for racing ongoing is that they have to. Um, it's much easier for them to love it if they they experience farms and sales and all that sort of stuff. That's it's just much easier to get your head around why you love it instead of standing in a pub tab putting first fours on and things like that. So good on your Blakey boy. Well, he's obviously very smart. Um person Blake because he's planning for the future he's been following and shadowing his great mate um, Boomer Bloodstock as well so they uh, or Blake is looking to the future because he he said he wants to be a trainer when he finishes being a jockey and he could also move down that breeding path and bloodstock path as Absolutely. well. Absolutely but but important for young apprentices to understand the animal not just the racehorse and I think that's what he was alluding to as well while we're on Blake um, he had a little comment about alligator blood uh, as we look towards the All-Star Mile as well. He's fantastic. Um, what a horse. I I kind of get goosebumps when I ride this horse because he's overcome adversity to get to where he has today. And I've only had a short time riding him, but I'm in admiration of what he's achieved and his resilience and enthusiasm about his job like he after his last run uh, worked him on the Thursday he could have could have raced last Saturday gallop this morning come off the track smile and happy mm. um, he's he's ready to go I I couldn't be any, any happier with him heading towards the all-star mile and um, yeah Gay's done a phenomenal job and Adrian and and the team here and yeah, it's going to be a, a one exciting race. Yeah. It's a pretty good push. Well, he's now everyone's now convinced that he's um, the perfect um, soldier, um, alligator blood. We never quite knew how he was going to come back, you know, for that previous campaign. But he's just so well rounded and sort of he's got that invincible sort of feel about him. So I'd love to see him win the All Star Mile because he's he's such a folk hero. He's one of the most popular horses, most envied horses that I can uh, think of. So. Um, so, yeah, the All-Star Mile. So it's great that Alligator Blood's going to be there. Mawonga won't still be. A, it's still a movable feast, this All-Star Mile final field. Yesterday, uh, Connections of Fangirl knocked back um, the 
um, the start in an all-star mile, which means that Cascadian now moves into the all-star mile field. Now, I wish I'd win is still in there, so he won't be running. First emergency, she's a belter. Now, Paul Snowden just said before that if she's a belter runs well in the Coolmore, they may well consider backing up a week later and running in the All-Star Mile. Annabelle Neesham, Mowunga is the second emergency. Now, there's a there's a question mark over Tuvalu. Now, if Tuvalu doesn't get to the starting gates in the All-Star Mile, Annabelle Neesham has said that they won't take up the option for Mowunga. So, Elliptical is under Mowunga. Hinged, he's not going to go there. He's going to the Guineas in Sydney. Hinged is next best. On a Doncaster preparation, I would imagine, but not sure whether they would change their plans there. So um, the question mark with Tuvalu, will we know more today? You've had a quick check to Lindsay. Lindsay's going to text me when he uh, when he get, gets a full set of results back after he's another disappointing run. He's been on antibiotics. The vibe I'm getting is it's less likely than likely mm. with Tuvalu. That's unfortunate. He's the, he's the first big horse with high expectations that has really stumbled this time in for whatever reason. So... You know, one thing I'd love to do is poll every trainer and senior owner of these horses who has a horse in this all-star mile about what they think of the weight conditions of the race. I'd like to get a real sense of the mood of those aiming at it as to whether they feel that the weight for age conditions are a perfect fit for the race. It'd be interesting. Like You mentioned she's a Beltar, for instance. Well, I don't know why they're wasting their time. She can't win it at weight for age, so... um, you know, there are others who... She gets 54 kilos, so yeah, she gets know, five but... kilos off alligator blood on yeah. Thunderstruck, Mr. Brightside. So I'd, I'd be interested to keep that that conversation going about whether it's the perfect fit at Wait for Age. So we can give them all a call today and we can have the results of your little survey um, of all of the trainers tomorrow. I'd like Race of Victoria to conduct it because <laughs> they're the ones that uh, affect the conditions of the race. Um, Sheen Murphy, some big news, though. Annabelle Neesham saying that Sheen Murphy has been engaged as the writer for Laws of Indices once they get the visa sorted out. So it'll be great to see Sheen at Mooney Valley on All-Star Mile Day. And and great to see that Jamie Mott's now being considered a regular big-time writer. He picks up the ride on my Oberon um, for Annabelle Neesham as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What uh, else do you want to talk oh, about, I Michael? You were pick up. Uh, it's your news. Uh, it's, it's, it's your live rundown in front of you. You've got one there. Goodness well, gracious. you know, you're conducting this um, seminar. Well, let's talk about um, Gay Waterhouse because you wanted to have a debate or a discussion about where you think uh, or who you think is the most influential woman in racing because it is International Women's Day today. Yeah, exactly. So let's have a listen to Gay, some audio from Gay talking about um, the terrible difficulties she had to get her trainer's licence and then we're going to start her on the top of the pole because after she did get her trainer's licence back 30 years ago, she has now become the most influential woman in the history of Australian racing. Well, I didn't go out intending to be a trailblazer, but, you know, (laughs) if you fight you know, the battle royal and, and uh, for women's rights. And that's what happened with, uh, you know, when I had to get my licence. I was trying to get my licence. Uh, and we went right through to the High Court and eventually uh, the ATC, the AJC at that time, uh, you know, fell over and said, all right, we'll give you a licence. But what it did, it, it made the path for women in the workforce could be seen in your, in your own right, not as an appendage of your husband. It's known as the Waterhouse Act, and, and you know it changed conditions for women in, in the workforce. 
Well, on the Big V a little bit later on, we're going to put it out there as to what people think is... And I'm not... It's sort of hard to resist doing it today because it's International Women's Day, but I think the one great thing about horse racing is that there's no distinction now between male and female. It's almost, in a way, redundant because they have smashed through that a long time ago and there's no separation between male and female. But still throughout history, there have been women who have been amazing uh, pioneers and so on. So 0416 one uh, So my, I was thinking about it before. Tell me what you... I think Gay Waterhouse has to be regarded as the most influential female in the history of Australian racing because of all the reasons. Everything she's done, her fame, um, the image she projects, all that sort of stuff. So I think Gay Waterhouse is, is the most influential. I think Michelle Payne is the second most influential because that win in the Melbourne Cup in 2015 led to a movie. Uh, it was, you know, the, her famous comments um, coming back to scale about uh, misogyny and all that sort of stuff. And however, since that win, um, I think she, she smashed the way clear for, made it life a lot more easy for the Jamie Cars and all the other girls that came along. I think Jamie Carr has to be regarded as um, right up there in the top three because she's the first female jockey to absolutely convince absolutely everyone that there's no difference between a top male jockey and a top female jockey. And she's now become probably one of the top five or six jockeys in the world, and that was never going to happen um, previously. Bev Buckingham as the brave trailblazer in Tasmania has to get a mention. Frances Nelson administratively with her roles with Racing Australia and and all that sort of stuff and Oakbank and, and a ferocious advocate for, for things. Tried to save uh, Oakbank jumps but f- fell at the last. But So they're the sort of women that I regard. Amanda Elliott was a, a significant contributor as well and uh, New Zealand's got its own and, and I think internationally the, the performances of Rachel Blackmore and others uh, would have to be Cricket Head is another one in France. Well, it's hard to argue with your top three. It's hard to argue with any of the names you've mentioned. It's probably, you know, uh, semantics, putting them in a certain order. I think you've got to put Pam O'Neill, who was a trailblazer, along with Gay Waterhouse as far as female jockeys are and the the fight that she had. Um, I think she's really high up as far as all-time leading ladies are concerned for changing the, the, the aspect and the way females are thought of in racing. Uh, the other one that I think you need to mention as well is Sheila Laxon, the first female to train a Melbourne Cup winner. One area that seems a bit glaring is every nearly every woman... Administrators? Was, yeah, exactly. I, I, they, they haven't smashed through that ceiling, have they? The, yep. Every race club I can think of... Um, uh, Charlotte Mills, who's now at Mooney Valley, was a very senior administrator in Western Australia, but I think the one area where... If there's still a hint of a boys' club, it's in racing administration. I agree. Um, and there are more female CEOs coming into play now in football, yep. presidents. Yeah. But we haven't seen... Amanda Elliott broke the glass ceiling to be the first female chairman of the VRC. But I, I agree with you. I'd like to see more women on boards and in leading executive levels on, on race clubs and in racing administration. Be nice if um, the first one to smash the glass ceiling was perhaps in a CEO's position, perhaps in New South Wales. Would be nice. (laughs) Speaking of which, there's a story in the Australian Financial Review. Uh, The headline is, It Stinks, Racing New South Wales Accused of Haphazard Strapper's Bonus Applications. So what's happened is, in New South Wales, there is a 2% Strapper's Bonus 
that is solely paid to New South Wales-based strappers. But when the proverbials hit the fan and people have jumped up and down, they've said, oh, okay, okay. So Jonathan Munns jumped up and down, very powerful individual and head of the Owners Association about the situation with Giga Kick, the horse he owned, that the strapper should be entitled to a cut of the action, and that amounted to 122000 in the case of the Everest win by Giga Kick. Um, and Jackano's connections, which happened to include a racing New South Wales director in Simon Tuxen, was able to achieve the same thing, even though it's a Victorian-trained horse. So when leaned upon by a director of racing New South Wales, that strapper of that horse received the 2%. But um, across the board, it seems an extraordinary unnecessary block out for the sake of it. So there's there's been a real blowback on this. Um, Jonathan Munns um, has been very vocal uh, in his comments. This is this is these are some quotes from Jonathan Munns in the um, Australian Financial Review. I told Peter, as in Volandis, that his policy was nuts. In my view it was fundamentally improper and unfair. You can't treat a worker differently for doing the same work in New South Wales just because they live in Victoria. John O'Neill our mate, sorry, Joe O'Neill, our mate, it F dot 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 ing stinks. It's for Landy's at his worst. He is a shocker, O'Neill's told the Australian Financial Review. So, Pete, if you're thinking of sending letters, send them to the AFR. Well, it's been going on a long time. But what is interesting is that while it's um, without a doubt a bizarre set of rules that Racing New South Wales have put in place... Um, Peter Valandis has, has backed down when a billionaire, Jonathan Munns, a powerful person, gets involved. But the everyday trainer who wins a race in New South Wales, um, their strappers don't get the cash. Well, um, Peter Moody followed suit. He heard Jonathan Munns. Golden, oh, yeah. The, so I wish I win. Yep. Um, they paid out, rightfully so, the strapper. Mick Price got wind of it. So Jack what? And o, they paid out. Uh, but other... Victorian horses and how many of those horses would there be and how much money would that be is not getting paid to the Victorian strappers. It's ironic that um, Racing New South Wales has instigated a lawsuit based on restraint of trade um, with the other states (laughs) when there is a very similar scenario for strappers who do exactly the same job but just because they're not based in racing in New South Wales don't get paid the same amount of money well, that what, New South Wales what's, do. What looks worse, having the exclusion in the first place or bowing to certain individuals because uh, they, yeah, but retaining it for others? Like, is, is it worse to have the rule or is it worse to, to um, not hold it steadfast anyway? So anyway, interesting one. Um, there, there have been a few people I've noticed um, in recent weeks that have been more willing to vocalise their displeasure with racing New South Wales and the stances that that state has been taking. So There's I a wonder suggestion, whether there is a yeah. more concerted push by the biggest names in the mm. racing industry mm. to say that enough's enough. For even those who were once not willing to do so. So, yeah, no, it's going to be interesting. Going to be, 2023 is going to be an interesting year in, in that sense, I think. Uh, hey, interesting... The Cheltenham Jumps Festival kicks off uh, in the next few days. And as you know, it's absolutely massive and they get the biggest crowds across anywhere in Europe for a sequence of days at the Jumps Festival. Uh, you know how we've been talking about the the push for affordability checks on punters? There's an interesting story in the Racing Post today about 
this might herald in a return to the glory days of the combat at the racetrack. And there's suggestions in the UK that punters are now swarming back to the racetracks because they're not affordability checked. And they and the, the, the betting rings in the UK are really livening up. And they're expecting at the <laughs> Cheltenham Jumps Festival that this sort of probity check stuff that's going to have a really positive impact on people now going to the racetrack to, to, to do what they used to do 50 years ago, and that's a bet with bookies. So that's an interesting one there. And there's just another story that I noticed on the Racing Post, always interesting with a, a potentially landmark decision. Uh, two Welsh Parliament members have claimed that horse racing is under no threat in the country, but the Welsh Parliament prepares to debate whether to ban greyhound racing in Wales. Um, and greyhound racing has existed in Wales for a long, long time. So that's an interesting situation there. You is know, that the because famous... of a, uh, the push saying that just the the, the local RSPCA or whatever that, it is that type of it. angle? Yeah. Do you remember the um, Sadashi, the hero the, the, horse of Japan, the White Flash, the White Superstar? Damien Lane has been engaged to ride one of the most famous horses in the world, the White Wonder. When he returns, to, when uh, uh, Sadashi returns to the track in the Victoria Mile, Victoria Mile at Tokyo on May 14, so um, it'd it be the first time Damien Lane has ridden um, Sadashi, who's been ridden by uh, Hiato Yoshida for its entire career. So that'll be massive. That'll be one for the wall at Damien Lane's so, home. He's huge uh, over there in Japan, Damien Lane, and his his reputation and his um, standing in the sport. It just goes from strength to strength, and and that's that's a, a highlight engagement for one of the cult hero horses in Japan racing for them to reach out to Damien Lane to try and get it back to its best. Well, you think of the the crowds they get over there. I know you were there and you experienced the crowds, and this is the biggest hero horse they've had, the most d- distinguishable one. If he wins on it. I don't reckon there will ever have been a racing reception quite like when Sadashi comes back and wins. So that'll be fantastic to watch that. You know how we were wondering why they had a race meeting at Mooney Valley on Sunday? I spoke to Racing Victoria about it. And they said, in light of all the big projects going on with the community and uh, the the new Mooney Valley track that's being built, it was specifically aimed at community engagement to, to maybe explain what's going on and what the racetrack will look like in the future. So that was the... I'm not sure how engaging it was with the community, but that was certainly... It just seems strange on the first day of Victoria's biggest bloodstock sale that you have a city meeting yeah. which clashes with their first day of the sale. No, absolutely. Um, any SMSs? Why have we got such a... A thin meeting today at Sandan on the lakeside. Don't know. It's just the way it goes, I think. Lakeside's not hillside. It's not quite as, uh, you know, attractive in some ways. But it's not mega small. It's smallish. I don't think it's crisis size. But it's just a, a, a bit of a small meeting, I think, at lakeside today. Um, Gee, it looks pretty thin to me. I'll, yeah, I'll, have to, I'll have to find your winner to get you more enthusiastic. You've got seven or eight horse fields. No, but I'm, I'm like, you've got $55,000 prize money in the races and I mean Lakeside's still a good track and I mean what's the total number of runners that we've might got? be an issue with the benchmark system there's two there's Rails three sixty six meters there's four sixty fours there's a class one you've got seventy nine a... runners over eight races I don't know I, I just thought you would have yeah. a bigger group of uh, a bigger race day any yes, any contributors anyone kicking it costs up for about some... thirty thousand dollars to get a horse to the sales plus your service fee Unfortunately, with a downturn in yearling prices, the small broodmare breeders are getting squeezed out. It will be the big farm 
big trainers industry soon, which is very sad. The romance of racing will be gone forever. So that's the pressures which um, we've been told are being felt by hobby breeders and small-time breeders, maybe. Well, it's yin and yang. For every person who benefits a bit by it, there's someone who doesn't. So that's that's well well pointed out there. Um, the big V today, the classic example of one of the things we're going to talk about is the chronic misspelling of Hinamungi on the live rundown. There's a race meeting. spell Hinamungi? I have no idea how to spell it. Nobody knows how to spell it. Not many people know where it is. It's described as the most far-flung racetrack in Australia for accessibility on its on a store. I don't even know where it is. No, I don't either. It's over there somewhere up in the hills. It's known as the Flemington of the Mountains. The Hinamundi Cup is on Saturday. We're going to have a chat to the uh, the CEO of the club just to tell us about a bit more. Answer these questions. How do you spell it? Where is it? Um, what's it all about? Um, Troy Kilgower is taking 10 horses there. We're going to have a chat to him on Nikita Ross's segment tomorrow. Um, so we're going to have a little delve into the mystery of Hinamundi. Um, Froggy Newitt's going to join us on his little segment today. Um, what's it called? Up the Country on the Road? On the road. How long have you been doing the show? Yeah, not not long enough, obviously. Um, he rode three new market winners. He's going to tell us about every single circumstance of how he rode those three winners of the new market. And Benny Thompson's going, to, our mate's going to join us, and he's on Buenos Nachos. Make sure you tune in at ten thirty as well, because Carleen Heffel. I know you love Carleen Heffel. The Heff. Um, she will be joining us live in the studio. She's uh, mature age apprentice. He's done so well, an award winner the other day, and then. Uh, looking forward to catching up with Caitlin Hollywood, who was one of the new wave of apprentices who has just joined the apprentice school. And she's got a, a wonderful backstory about how she fell in love with horses and race riding um, became her passion following in the footsteps of Damien Oliver, who's her idol. Well, there you go. Hey, just a little grab. Um, Alex Turpin was delightful yesterday. And. Uh, Annabelle Neesham is her boss, and we spoke. And you spoke to the niche today, but we thought it was really interesting yesterday to talk about people who are attached to this juggernaut, what it's like working for this. It'd be like working for McDonald's when they open their first store, and then suddenly there's 30,000 stores all around the world. So this is um, a grab from Alex Turpin, who's a senior member of the staff at Annabelle Neesham's. We spoke to her at the sales yesterday. And we're trying to delve into the secrets to the success of Annabelle Neesham, and she sort of, Alex Turpin, touched on one of the key ones. She she's the hardest worker you will ever ever find. She's you know she's always a sort of you know she's obviously at track work every morning, but she works constantly throughout the day. You know she always takes phone calls from owners. Um, you know she never she never switches off. And I think you know her her work ethic is something that's really sort of gone down into the rest of the team as well. Um, you know everyone sort of striving to sort of work as hard as her, and we can all sort of see how much it you know means to her. Um, and I think that's why, you know, we've got such a, an exciting young team as well um, that want to follow in our footsteps. Beautiful. Um, she was a delight. Niche, Niche has a knack of hiring the right people. Yep, uh, she certainly does. Uh, looking forward to the Big V coming up later. Thanks, Maddie. Miguel. Maddie and Matt will be here after 11.30. Quick break. On the other side of this, we'll catch up with Gavin Bedgood and Maddie Smith.